my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Dale Merrill. He is a global managing director in Franklin Covey's sales performance practice. He is co-author of the book, Strikingly Different Selling, Six Vital Skills to Stand Out and Sell More. Dale is a highly sought after thought leader and trusted advisor to sales and business leaders at many of the world's most admired companies. And we're going to talk about Dale's history. We're going to talk about his book. And really, if, if you look at his uh, professional uh, trajectory, he's in a, a different uh, arena than where he started his career. And I think that's the case for many of us. And the interesting part is I, I just... I'm intrigued by the the path that led you to be working with Franklin Covey and um, really just you've had so many leadership roles and uh, just vast experience around the globe. I um, <clears throat> I'm just really excited to get into this conversation and I, I want to say thank you, Dale, for for allowing me this opportunity to have a conversation with you and, and find out more about you and find out more about your book. Thank you, Dave. It's a real treat to be here and looking forward to our interview. Well, let's start off with uh, where you were born and raised, what, uh, what your childhood looked like, what did your parents do, maybe some of your early influences. Sure. Wow. If we go back that far, I have to really stretch in my mind, right? So I was actually born and raised in Paul, Idaho. I don't know if you'd even find that on a map. South central Idaho. Uh, the area was called the Magic Valley Farming Community. And my dad owned the grocery store in Paul, Idaho. And I was surrounded by farms, grew up working uh, on all kinds of uh, farms and agriculture from moving sprinkler pipes, you know, hand lines, to shoveling lots of manure, so much manure you can't believe <laughs> in a lot of different ways, and uh, digging, you know, ditches, weeding fields, driving tractors, things like that. Uh, my dad sold the grocery store in 1973, and uh, a small chain of, of uh, grocery stores bought that chain, or bought that store, and so I had a paper route when I was in fifth grade. I, I had that through eighth grade, delivered more than 84,000 papers, always had to earn my own way. Uh, my parents were b believers in hard work, and uh, I started working for this grocery store chain, and that's what helped pay for, for a lot of my college uh, later. So, I, I, yeah, that's, that's where I started, and we can go from there, but I had lots of hard work and agricultural experience. Where did you go from Paul, Idaho? And and what led you there? One thing I forgot to mention is that I love motorcycles. And one of the things I love about Idaho, it was wide open space. And my therapy growing up was, was by myself on my dirt bike out in the desert, uh, jumping things, crashing on things, climbing extinct volcanoes. That was my passion. From there, I went to school at Brigham Young University in Utah, Provo, Utah. And I uh, got a bachelor's in accounting and business and a master's in accountancy. And there's a whole story behind that. And then how I went on my career, I went from there to Seattle, Washington, where I started my career and started with a firm named Arthur Anderson and uh, grew up through the ranks. I got my certified public accountant license. I got bored after about nine months doing auditing. And so I moved into consulting and I love that because clients would, instead of repelling me, embrace me. You know, they were excited to see me. I'm helping them grow their business and helping them 
see how they can do better. So I was a strategy. I made partner in that um, in Seattle. Uh, so I was in Seattle for about 12 years and was a strategy technology partner. And then uh, the firm asked me to move to Sacramento, California. And uh, I arrived on September 1st of 2001 and was driving to my new corner office that I thought I had really arrived and 9-11 hit. The entire world turned upside down. Everything changed. My life view changed. And for those who know the history of Anderson, and if you don't, you can look it up. It's pretty fascinating. So I just made partner. Um, and then this thing called Enron hit. It was an account that was about 1% of the firm's revenue. But wow, when those, and I, there were 90,000 employees of Arthur Anderson. And I was one of the partners. There's about 4,000 of us around the world. We didn't even really know about this account. It brought the firm down. So I'll pause there because a whole different career trajectory happened when I made some choices after that went down. I'm curious what led a motorcycle riding farm boy choose accounting? Well, it's a great question. In high so two things. I, I took a class in high school, senior year, in accounting. I did really well. I went to a junior college in Idaho uh, for a year before I, I did some humanitarian and church service for my church. I went on a, they call it a mission. And I did that over in Ireland. I lived over there for, for a year and a half. And as I was going through that experience, when I came back and I transferred to BYU in Provo, I uh, thought about what I wanted to do. I always wanted to go into business and I wanted to be an attorney. And I was a very good student. Um, I had, and so my goal was to go to Harvard. That was my goal, to go from, from Idaho to Massachusetts and go to Harvard. My junior year at BYU, I looked around and said, what's the top program at BYU? The accounting program was, I think at the time, in the top three in the country, widely recognized as one of the best and one of the most progressive and, and forward thinking, if you can associate those two things with accounting, right? <laughs> People are going, what? Um, and so I chose accounting as my undergrad because what a great, and it's almost like a dual major in business and accounting. And um, so I chose that, was doing well. And then my junior year, I was starting to look at law school. And so I, I talked to one of my uh, professors and said, hey, can you connect me up with a, an attorney who's a JD MBA, right? So a, a lawyer and an MBA, because I thought that's what I wanted to do as well. And when I talked to this lawyer and he described what he did, when I got done with the conversation, I went, nope, that's not what I'm going to be doing. It's not interesting. I need the scintillating, exciting field of accounting. So I decided, <laughs> I decided to do the Masters of Accounting because we'd had these career days and a kid from Idaho, I, these guys came in, this is in the late 80s, right? These guys came in, they were, you know, they were doing very well financially. They looked really polished. Uh, they described the career, how he could do a consulting, which even in school was interesting. So I said, that's for me. So I did my master's, interviewed with, there were eight big firms globally at the time. I picked the number one one. I had offers from almost all of them and, and chose between Phoenix and Seattle. I wanted to go to Phoenix. My, my beautiful wife wanted to go to Seattle. So of course we went to Seattle, right? And uh, our three kids were born there. Our, our family, that's home for us. So. That's how I, I, it was just a, a process of seeing what's out there. And I, and I picked, like I just mentioned, that's kind of the path that I went down to pick it. And then when I got there, I discovered you can start anywhere and go everywhere. So I did nine months in audit. You know, I studied, I got my CPA because that's a big deal and really got bored after nine months. And uh, I decided, you know, the cows are in auditing, but the horses are in consulting. So let's get over into the horses where I can race. And I just love that. And then I bounced back and forth between audit and consulting, but it made partner in consulting. And that's my path. So that was the process. You mentioned 9-11 and, and everything changed for you. So can you, can you talk about that experience and, and how your life changed? Yeah, you know... Have you ever heard the metaphor, I, I, I was on a ladder, I climbed to the top of the building, and which is kind of like climbing through your career and you get up to the top and making partner, if those don't know, that's a big deal. That's like, wow, you've really done something. 
and I thought I had arrived. And I'm on the top of the building looking around and life looks amazing. And, uh, you know, the partners asked me to run a practice down in Sacramento. I'd only been a partner for a year, so I thought, I'm really doing well. <laughs> so I get down there, I'm driving to my new corner office, right, with, with all the fancy things you see in a corner office. 9-11 hits, and I vividly remember the whole thing because I was driving, I had the radio on, was listening to the news, and they said that a plane just crashed into one of the Twin Towers. And I thought it was a joke at first, like an Orwellian joke. And I thought, what? And I just, I even now, I, I feel the, uh, the pain and the shock and horror. And I got to my office. There was, we didn't have TV in the office then. So I ran down to Old Sack and um, went to a restaurant, you know, that, that had a, a TV. And I just sat there, just shocked, like pr the rest of humanity. And it just, it, it, it struck me to my core that, wow, uh, this is something that will change all of our lives forever. And I immediately, with the entire rest of the country, felt this amazing surge of patriotism and wanting to serve and love and help any way that I could. And a number of things kind of flowed from that, but that, that was my recollection through that whole day. And it has, was forever indelibly imprinted on my mind, my heart, um, in every way. Following 9-11, you mentioned Enron, and yeah. essentially your whole world was flipped upside down when uh, the, the firm you worked for just disintegrated. So yeah. what did... What did you do? So after 9-11 in December, Enron hit. And I, I remember all the partners, uh, Joe Berardino was our CEO and he flew out. We were, we were a, a $10 billion, 90,000 person company. And he came out and he said, hey, and, and remember it was December of, of 2001. He said, hey, you know, don't worry, it, this thing happened. Uh, it's like 1% of our revenue. It's very unfortunate. Uh, the client lied to the partners down there. They got bought in. And some. And so we're, we're going to have some noise in the news, but don't worry about it. That was December. Uh, January, we started, the, the firm said, um, this is bigger than we thought. The Justice Department's going to indict us. And we told the Justice Department, you can't indict a CPA firm. We'll go out of business. Our, our, our name is our bond. And we were Arthur Anderson. And at the time, it was like, you're the pinnacle of professionalism, of honesty and ethics. Well, the Justice Department said, no, we indict firms all the time. We invite, we indict Coca-Cola. We indict Coke, you know, Xerox. And so you just pay a fine and you move on. And we said, no, it's, it's not going to be like that. They indicted and clients fled by the billions. And by March, we were bundling up the firm to sell it in pieces out to other firms. And uh, that whole thing happened. We in our practice were bundled up our um, our practice. All of the people in the in the San Francisco area. Our, we were in that base circle. We did a deal with another firm. I had a I introduced their partners to all of my clients. Um, I got all of my people because I was ahead of the practice to sign contracts. I had a contract to be a partner, and I'll never forget. In June of 2002, I got a call from some person in this re uh, regional partner for this firm. I said, hey, Dale, you don't know me. I'm so-and-so from such-and-such -such firm. And uh, just want to let you know, we're cutting you out of the deal. I said, wow. I said, I, I just, you know, I just introduced all of your partners to my clients, millions of dollars of revenue. And I got all my people to sign contracts. And I have a contract. He said, I know. He said, it's nothing personal. Uh, we just don't need you because our partners can handle it. So all of a sudden, I went from the top of the building to my personal building crumbled. And in my mind, I flashed back to 9-11. I thought, not, not to make any, any similarity, but in my head, I felt like my world was crumbling. And I hung up and, and uh, said, wow. I called my wife. I said, hey, Debbie, I'm unemployed. <laughs> and she said, what? So that, that kicked off a real soul-searching exercise. I had turned down an opportunity to go back to Seattle and be part of that deal. But I said, no, I want to take care of my team and my people. I'll stay here. And it didn't work out. So I had a chance to be partner at different firms. But that's when I really stepped back 
and I ran every morning running was my stress relief. I ran at 3.30 in the morning. And uh, whenever I'd wake up with stress, worrying about my three children, my wife, you know, our family, they're all, it's a young family. How could we do this? And I decided I'm not going to go, uh, I'm not going to jump back into corporate America like I had been. Um, I bought a marketing franchise and I started my own company. And I started from one employee, me, and that's, that's how I got into really applying consulting skills, but from my own way to help companies think differently and do differently. And that's kind of the trajectory. One of the big reasons that I wanted to talk with you is that, you know, I, I teach a lot on leadership, self-leadership, um, different aspects of emotional intelligence. And, you know, with your book being really at the core how, how to sell, right? And I, I found that to be successful in sales for any length of time, you've got to be authentic. You've, you can't be a shyster because it's not going to last. Right. So I, I want, I, I want to pick your brain about really some of the, the lessons that you teach uh, regarding sales. And, and I just think that there's without a doubt, a direct correlation to leadership and self-leadership in, in how you present yourself and how you're able to sell effectively and, and marketing as well. So when I was at Anderson, um, to make partner, you have to sell a lot. It's not enough to be a great technical person. You have to connect authentically in a human way with people. And I got good at it. I mean, I, I got, and this is the epiphany that I had at Anderson. And then I'll tell you quickly the rest of my path to where I came to Franklin Covey. And then I'll, I'll share about how I figured this out. At least I think I did. At Anderson, I first dreaded selling. I thought, no, I came here to help clients. I don't want to sell. And in my head, I had the perception selling pushing and, you know, all the, all the bad things you think about selling. And then I um, had an experience with a senior a client executive at the CEO of a company. And I said, I'm not going to put any pressure on myself. I'm just going to go in here and listen to what this person's problems are with his company. And I know what we do. And if we can put something together, great. If not, no problem. So I listened to him and I was really intent on helping this, this guy do something different and better. And as he started describing his problem, this is a big fruit producing company. We've all eaten their prunes and their raisins and things like that. Uh, it was actually SunSweet. And I started, he started telling me what was going on. And I said, wow, we can really help with that. So I asked him a bunch of questions and then I started sharing how we might be able to help. We both got you know, some energy in there and I walked out with a verbal contract for several hundred thousand dollars. And I thought, I want that. That's really good. And I realized that to be a great salesperson, you have to first care about the other person, sincerely. And so that was kind of the start. So I, I got good at that at Anderson. When I left Anderson, I bought this marketing franchise. I was selling a person of one with some ideas. And I got my first contract and I started helping this client. And it went so well, they invited me to come to Utah. This is how I moved from California to Utah. And I came back and I worked in private equity for eight years. Three years, I, I was a CFO, which makes sense given my financial background. Then they asked me to be the chief operating officer. And they said, wow, you know, you seem to have a knack for this. Would you take over a CEO? So I said, sure. And so we, we grew that little investment company for, for three years, employing a bunch of sales techniques and things that I had learned. Then I went and worked for another private equity company and I, they asked me to come in and run it. And it was about a 1,500 employee company. And I started using all the different things that I had used at Anderson. Some worked, some didn't. And then we were buying millions of dollars of consulting services. And lots, most of the salespeople were just atrocious. I mean, it's all about them. It was about their solutions and their technology. And, and because we were buying so much and growing so fast as a company, I thought, there's a huge gap between I, what I think works and what does work. So all of that kind of was in my mind. After I ran that company, I was doing my own thing in real estate development. And a friend of mine who works for Franklin Covey 
reached out and said, Dale, you know, and he knew my background. He said, I think you'd be perfect at Franklin Covey in the sales performance practice. And I said, why do you think that? He said, well, I've heard you speak. I know that you love to speak. And I know that you've, you know, you've been successful. You've, you've, you've worked things out and you've had some tragedies and been able to work through them. <clears throat> so I told him no. And then uh, just because I was happy doing what I was doing, six months later, I um, pulled out some life goals that I had written, probably in a Franklin Covey class or a Covey leadership class. And, and, I, and I had all this stuff, I thought, that's so interesting. I checked stuff off, but the top of the list was teach, motivate, write. I thought, teach, motivate, write. Franklin Covey, arguably one of the best in the world, called him back. His name's Scott. I said, Scott, I'm in. Let's talk. And that was, that was 11 years ago. So coming to the sales side, I, part of the deal was I said, I want to help people on this planet think differently about selling. And so Scott and I said, well, let's write a book together. So this kicked off a 10-year project that just culminated in January when we launched the book on how do you focus on helping clients succeed with the paradox of you, you will find when you, when you focus first on the success of others, you'll be more successful yourself. That's the premise. That's the key mindset for this book of strikingly different selling. And there's, there's a whole lens you look through, a formula and a way that you do it. And it's simple. And it involves how do you influence another human with their best interest at heart? And if you do that, uh, Jack Welch, you may or may not be familiar with, he ran General Electric. Uh, he was just a legend. He, he's the late Jack Welch now. When he took over at General Electric, it was $12 billion in revenue. And when he retired, it was up at $400 billion. So you do the math, it's a pretty big run. He became famous for his management philosophy. He said this, we've learned that anything we can do to make the customer more successful inevitably results in a financial return to us. That core mindset uh, is etched into me as well and has become the way that I operate. So that's how I got to Franklin Covey. It's serendipitous because when I was in the, math, the grad school, my wife worked for Covey Leadership Center. That was in, from 87 to 1989. And we had a chance to go through the beta program there was 20 employees. They almost went bankrupt. Stephen had to mortgage his house. Stephen R. Covey, he wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And they had this beta thing called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And my wife and I went through it, and that was a transformative thing. Just changed everything completely for both of us. And they gave me a job offer. Uh, the president, Bill Murray at the time, offered me a job. And I said, thank you, and no, I want to go do this big company thing. So it's pretty serendipitous that 25 years later, I'm back. Or, or not back, but I'm, I'm here and I came and I thought I'd be here for two years and it's been 11 years and I have had the most amazing experience with incredible people and amazing clients around the world and I feel like I've been able to make a dent uh, for thousands of people, not me, but, but I, I represent you know the body of work that we bring and it's with good people and it's transformed how many people think about selling around the world. This mindset that that you just uh painted a picture of i i talk about quite a bit on this podcast i i wrote about it in my book i i've studied leadership for quite some time and and philosophy and and world religions and i came to this conclusion uh that throughout mankind's history there is this common thread that, you know, world leaders, uh, our history's greatest thinkers, uh, religious leaders, there's this common thread that kind of points to the, the purpose of all humans is to add value to those around us. And there was a, a book that I read early on in my leadership teaching it was written by a Navy SEAL. I can't remember the book for the life of me because I've read so many Navy SEAL books. But in this one, the, the guy coins the term selfish altruism. And I've used that term ever since then to, to really talk about as leaders, we've got to add, a, we're, 
you know, work really, really hard at adding as much value to ourselves with the intention of then being better able to add value to those around us. By adding value to those around us and, and setting that example, the, the team then strives to do the same. And it just makes the team that much better, uh, just high performing, and the return is exponential for the leader. Because not only are they adding value to themselves, but the that mindset and it's that feel good aspect of doing for others that is so rewarding. And if you gain a little bit personally uh, outside of that, even better. And without fail, that's what happens. And yeah. uh, and, and so True. when you're when you're talking about that, you know, focusing on the success of your client, but you know, the way that I talk about it is you can't consider yourself successful as a leader without focusing on the success of the team. Their success is your success, and you can't consider yourself successful unless they are. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And this, this is obviously all of us have experiences that shape us. Failure was a big shaping factor for me. Um, and when I say failure, that things didn't go as planned. Right. And I, I realized that, just like you said, that if you focus on other people's success first, then it's going to be a good thing for you as well. In fact, what really helped start shaping this for me is I met a guy named Mahan Khalsa in 1996. I was, uh, I was in Seattle working for Arthur Anderson, and the partner said, hey, you know, come down here from Seattle, come down to Portland, and we have this guy. He's, a, he's an amazing guy, and he'll, he'll teach us different things about selling. And I had been through all this classic selling things, so I had a very low uh, expectation. And I met this guy, and he's like this, this guru, right? And he, he taught these principles. In fact, I can't take credit for the way I expressed that, that helping clients succeed. That's Mahan Khalsa. But it became part of me because it so resonated with me. And that was 1996. And that, interestingly, as I look back, is when I really started doing a lot better in selling. Because I forgot about the push and the me, and I, I, I thought about the client, and paradoxically, I had more success because I was focused on the client's success. And I just, that's so interesting, you know, and then I, I told you my trajectory, my career, but then after Anderson, I tried the same thing at both of the companies that I ran. And, um, you know, it works. And lot, most people don't get that. So this book, the quick turn back to the book of Strikingly Different Selling. This is the first book that I'm aware of and that my colleagues are aware of that is written purely through the eyes of the buyer. This is client first. If we had a mantra, if we had a rallying cry, it would be client first and you second, you being me and us, right? And um, the mindset in there and the six vital skills are all about how do you communicate with the client just like they want you to communicate? How do you ask questions and discover what's most important in a client-focused way? Now, that doesn't sound unique, probably, because everybody knows they need to do that. But like 95% of the planet doesn't do that. The 5% do, hence the term. We, we coined the expression, all these really awesome people out there that are sales professionals who make a lot of money, we call them surprisingly average. And to become strikingly different. Because we, we, I can, if we get into this, I'd love to tell you some of the research we did that was so fascinating. Strikingly different people focus first on the client, then on themselves. They think differently. They bring contrast in a way that is compelling and motiv motivating to the person they're talking to. And we discovered the principles of strikingly different selling actually apply everywhere. Anybody you're trying to influence in a good way. If you begin with good intent, meaning you're truly trying to help this other human, this other person, this other team, this company, uh, whatever, get the very best that they can get, if you have that mindset, then you can stand out in a different and better way. And there's a way to bring contrast that works, 
we call that strikingly different. And there's a way that doesn't work that most people do, we call that surprisingly average. And there's obviously a chasm between the two. Can you talk about the, uh, the six principles that you mentioned? Yeah. So probably, Dave, the best way to help people think about this if they haven't seen the book is the mind, start with the mindset. Because how we see the world determines, you know, our beliefs, our paradigms about the world determines what we do, the result, you know, the actions we take. And what we do, the actions we take determine the results we get, good or bad. And the results we get, good or bad, tend to reinforce how we see the world. So I just quoted Stephen Covey there, right? See, do, get, model. It's a change model. Love it. In selling, you should start with the mindset of helping clients succeed. And the lens we invite people to look through, and we describe all this in the book, is a lens of called relevant, distinct, and memorable. RDM. And if you can just learn that and repeat it like a song or like a mantra, um, then it will that will change the six skills that I'll tell you about. So R stands for relevant, as I mentioned, that means focusing on what matters most to the client. Not what matters most to you, not about your people, your process, your technology, not about your solution, but focus on what matters most to them. And then distinct means show them something different and better. So it's no surprise to any salesperson out there or any person trying to influence someone else that you need to bring contrast, duh right? And there's no, that's not a big surprise. What we found is that bringing the right kind of contrast and defining it in a way that matters to the client makes all the difference. Like I could put on, I could put on a bright yellow suit and light the remaining hair on my head on fire and run in circles. That would be different, but not necessarily different and better, right? And memorable means just make it easy to share and hard to forget. That's our definition of contrast. You won't find that in a dictionary anywhere. But that definition of contrast helps people be, go from surprisingly average to strikingly different. So that's the mindset. That's the model. And to bring that to life, we found these six vital skills. So two quick pieces of data, and then I'll go into the six skills here. We had a unique opportunity over six years to watch more than 2,800 really great sales professionals participate in almost 1,700 meetings with, this, with clients around the world. I think we had 135 different countries represented, 17 different industry groups, and on average about 23 years of experience. Highly compensated, supposed to be the top of their career, top of their game. And we had a chance to be the fly on the wall. So we had a chance to watch these meetings. And then we debriefed after every single meeting with the selling team, and the client. Here's what we found. We asked the selling team, hey, how'd that meeting go from your perspective? Dave, what do you think we heard from the sales guys, salespeople? Uh, it was awesome. That's one of the best meetings ever. Man, you were fly on the wall too, right? <laughs> That's what we heard. It's like thumbs up. We nailed it. We asked good questions. We had good information. We really feel like we're going to win this thing. Then we went to the client and the client was the C-suite people the chief executive officer or a chief financial officer or the chief technology officer, chief information officer, all those C-suite people. We said to them, hey, how did that meeting go from your perspective? About 70% of the time, there was a long pause and they said something like this. That meeting was a waste of my time. Thumbs down. It was so shocking to us. How do you have this? We could see this, you know, sideways thumbs, but how do you have thumbs up on one and thumbs down on the other in the same meeting? Now we watched these meetings and, it, and we were surprised till about the 400th meeting. And then we said, this is what's going on around the world all the time, lackluster meetings that go nowhere. And so we asked the clients, we started, we spent hundreds of hours with all these clients around the world and we said, help us help the world fix this. And so we thought we knew, you know how you always think you know things. So we said, what about this? And they go, no, what about that? No. So we tried some things coaching, we tried some things working on it, and we got it boiled down to the essence of the six vital skills of what makes a difference. And, and as we went through this experience, it was so interesting, we partnered up with this research firm, Primary Intelligence, and I'll tell you a little bit about the data, but um, one more stat is that 
We found, by, but with this primary intelligence, by looking at 14,500 different B2B buyer and seller uh, interactions, buyers could not tell the difference between sellers 42% of the time, leading to 17% average win rates globally on $100,000 deals up to billion-dollar deals. So as we worked with these executives, they said, everybody looks and sounds the same. Nobody stands out. They said, and this is, this is my metaphor, but if they were looking for an apple and they wanted an apple of a different color, a particular color, everybody came up as red apples, right? There's three, they have three different companies they're looking at. They all look red. They look like a red delicious. What they were looking for was uh, something different, like a green apple, right? But they didn't get it. So the six skills bring to life this concept of being relevant, distinct, and memorable in the client-focused way. So the first skill is... You have to capture the person's attention. You know, if you can't get someone's attention in our ADD world right now, guess what? You'll never have a chance to talk to them. You'll never have a chance to move it forward. But you have to keep their attention through the sales cycle. So it's capture attention with verbal billboards. And there's, we, we borrowed, took a page from the advertising industry and worked with the clients and, and came up with a really simple, easy way to be concise, focused on the client, and we think we cracked the code on the contrast thing uh, that's part of that. Um, I can tell you more about that if you want to dive into it. The second one is, once you've captured their attention, you got to get them excited about the potential journey. We call it a movie trailer. Create excitement with a movie trailer. We went to Hollywood, and we saw how does the film industry get us to go pay some money to watch a you know 90-minute to two-and-a-half-hour movie. And there's a ton to be learned there. And we came up with a formula, capture attention, which starts with the billboard, and then create interest, got to pull them in a little bit more, and then uh, call to action, invite them to do something. Remember, you can't divorce that, what I just said, from the principle of helping clients succeed. So if you have good intent, you're trying to give them something different and better, and it's in their best interest, you want to get them excited. So that's the second thing. That's the second skill is to create interest with the movie trailer or create excitement. The third one is you need to build credibility and confidence. And we have two different story forms. One call is called a flashback, which is how do you actually go back to your past successes and take that experience and share it with the client in a really compelling way. And then flash forward is once you've got built some credibility, how do you build confidence and just show them a nice path forward that actually feels right to them and is very client-facing. So that's the first three. The fourth one is, at some point, you're going to have to actually differentiate. And you want to become essential. So we, we created something called Why Us. So, you know, W-H-Y Us, exclamation point, differentiators. And there's a good way and a bad way to do the differentiation. 90, probably 8% of the salespeople do the not very compelling way and the strikingly different do this other way. So those first four skills are all about in connecting and engaging with the client. And the last two, you can't just talk, right? Early stage, you want to actually spend most of your time drawing out the client. And so the fifth skill is all about getting curious and finding out where are the gaps in what the client needs and how can you help them. And then the last one is, you're always going to have traffic lights, you know, green, yellow, red, just like you're driving down the street. And if you're doing it in the middle of the day, or in the middle of the night, it'll be a lot of green lights. You pass through the intersection. Middle of the day, it's going to be a lot of yellow and some reds. So how do you navigate pushbacks, challenges, and objections and do that in a good way? Always with the intent to help the client succeed. And again, amazingly, with those six skills, and you don't have to do them all at once. Sometimes you only need one or two in an interaction, but having them kind of like tools in your pocket will help you become strikingly different in the eyes of the buyer, the client, and they like it. And it builds lifelong friendships and relationships that you can actually do something with. So that's kind of a really brief overview of, of the, the body of work. And there's a lot more depth, obviously, underneath that, but that's, that's kind of the, the quick overview. I want to briefly... Uh discuss one of the things that you mentioned and it it like just clicked in my head that we need to we need to talk about that as a matter of fact it's really the foundation of this podcast from members to excellence 
I started this podcast after a huge crash and burn experience. My whole career, you know, went up in flames and had to really look at, you know, and question who am I? What, you know, what do I stand for? What, you know, I identified as this, this fire department chief officer, you know, a, a leader in the fire service. And now like, what, you know, I'm no longer in the fire department. What, you know, who am I? And I, and I look at, and actually, <laughs> and a lot of the coaching that I did throughout the fire service, you know, I ended up spending a lot of time with uh, people within my battalion, uh, officers at some of my stations where maybe they made a mistake. And, you know, the, the severity varied. Some came close to being career ending. Others were just minor mistakes. But when you look at failures and the mindset, to be able to pick yourself up and dust yourself off and chalk it up as a learning experience or an opportunity to grow, I think is a skill that not a lot of people have. You know, you can look throughout history at, at history's greatest leaders. And if you look in their past, you can see some really big failures that if they had not had that sense of, um, I don't know, perseverance, uh, a level of fortitude to really say, this isn't going to determine my, my fate or, you know, what people remember about me and, and just grow from there. Teaching that skill, teaching that mindset I believe it's a, a lesson that you learned. Um, I mean, because really it, it shaped your future from that big, you know, your, your world crumbling. Um, I, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that. And um, I know it's kind of slightly a divergence from our conversation about sales, but I, I think it's important because it allows us a level of compassion when we're looking at, at our clients or the people that we're, we're helping experience success. If we can understand where they're at and maybe how they're viewing failures or pitfalls along their path, we can help them see that there are better things to come, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, this will, this will get very personal, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. For me, it start, I learned hard work from my parents um, and my upbringing. Uh, our family always was huge on education. Uh, my parents encouraged all of us. There's six children in my family. My, my start, you know, five siblings, three boys and three girls in the family I grew up in. And going back, I, I, and here's, the, here's the red thread I'll pull through for what I learned. Everything seemed to go really well for me till my senior year in high school, actually my junior year. You know, I was in sports. I chose, I loved a bunch of different sports. In high school, I chose to go into speech and debate. That decision was pivotal in what I'm doing today. In my, and I always had run for office. You know, I was the student by president of my junior high, grade seven through nine. I was the sophomore, I, I was a, I can't remember all, let's see, I was a sophomore or something, some officer, and then I was student body vice president in junior, and then I said, I'm going to run for president. So I ran for president, and I lost by 12 votes. And as a kid, you know, a 17-year-old kid, I was 16, going, I just turned 17, going into my senior year, wow, it felt like my, that felt devastating to me. And I felt like, you know, my friends didn't, weren't there for me, and I really did soul searching. But what happened because of that is I doubled down on speech and debate. And so I, I, I had this, this society, it's called National Forensic Society. So I became the president of that chapter. And I just really, my senior year, traveled all over, as far as you can travel from Idaho, Utah and Idaho, and maybe Colorado or somewhere, you know. 
and had these competitions, and I just just won a lot. And that helped a lot for a kid to just get some self-confidence. And I realized it's okay. I can come, I can lose the biggest thing I had gone for in my life, and I can win in a different way, and it's okay. And then through my career, you know, I had lots, like all of us, everything wasn't hunky-dory, perfect, right? I had lots of setbacks along the way, but I achieved nice success, you could argue. And then the firm went down, and it's like, wow, that was jugular. Way bigger than losing a little race in a, in a high school of a thousand kids, right? And because and I, I had to provide for my family. Um, but I realized I just, and I have strong faith in God. I'm a Christian, and I put my trust in God. And I, and I just said, look, this must be the way it is, needs to be. Please help me see how I can provide for my family, how I can do something meaningful. And, and it wasn't a quick answer, but I felt I was led down the path. And, and the feeling that I had was, you can do anything. You just, you know, you have to be straight up with people. Uh, you, you do your best. You work hard. Use your brain and all the stuff you've learned, and look, you're gonna be able to harness all the stuff that you've done before, like teaching and uh, helping others. And so, so with that faith and with that approach, uh, that led me from California to Utah to run that little company. Well, we had setbacks in that little company. We grew like crazy, but we were 100% performance-based. We only made money. This was a unique thing that, that we only made money if we made money for our clients. The market went against us for a year. So I had no income for a year on that first company. And it got to the point where I said, you know, I believe in this philosophy, but I have to feed my family. My bank account's getting really down to the nubbins here, right? So that's when, and then I, right when I was just about out of money, I was recruited by this other private equity firm to run this company. And that was great for five years, but it was in 2007, eight, well, it was 2005 through 2009. Remember the global recession? Everything, so we doubled the size of the company, and then I had to completely retrench, and I had to, we had to let go a ton of people to try to even survive, and then we weren't even able to meet our bank commitments, so the bank put us on a forbearance agreement. We worked out a deal to do a Chapter 11 acquisition, a management-led buyout, which I was going to do, so I could save, help save 1,500 people's jobs and their families. On December 31st, so on December 18th of 2009, we worked out a deal with the bank, syndicated debt facility, all that, had everything worked out. December 31 of 2009, I got a call from the workout officer at this bank. And he said, hey, Dale, I know we worked out a deal, but we're pulling your line of credit. I said, you just swept $5 million out of our line. He said, I know, we, needed, we wanted that money back and... and we're going to bring this, we're, we're not going to support the company anymore. So for 10 days, we, we fought to save, you know, 1,500 people's jobs. It worked around the clock. And on December or on January 10th, we had to send a letter out to everybody saying, I'm sorry, all the money is gone. They're, your health care is gone. Your jobs are gone. And, and uh, good luck because the bank wouldn't, wouldn't support it. And they went back on their word. That... And then people were so angry. They thought I was the top officer. I was riding away on a white horse. It was devastating. I, you know, I, I, I had massive liability. The bank would not pay the sales tax liability in 31 states. They kept the money, which is against the law, by the way. I got personally sued by multiple states uh, to, because they pierced the corporate veil and they go after the top guy. And because they said, you know, you needed to pay. Th those were not your funds. And so I got sued multiple times, luckily prevailed every time, but people were threatening to kill my family. They were threatening to come bring pitchforks and kill me. Um, there were some very angry people um, from 31 states that worked for us. That was more devastating times about 100 to me personally than the Anderson thing because Anderson wasn't personal. This became personal. It was a very you know, small-ish, um, and wow. So from that then um, I kept my faith and I kept pushing forward. And, um, and that's when Franklin Covey reached out. And I said no at first, because I was doing some other things I had moved on to with real estate development until I looked at my life goals that I mentioned. And I just realized it's time to be true to what God has given me 
and bring some, some light and help to the world the best I can. I'm just one person, right? And then that kicked off um, this whole thing of, of uh, strikingly different selling and all the other things I've learned and benefited from. So I've learned if you keep looking forward, you get up when you get knocked down, you get knocked down, you get up again, you get knocked down, you get up again, you get kicked in the teeth, you get some new teeth and you get up again, you get burned, you put some ointment on, you get up again, and you just press forward. And if you press forward and you have faith in God and in yourself, things will work out uh, in a good way. So there is my story that has not been told on a podcast before. <laughs> and so Dave, you, you got me there. But that that's really the essence of of who I've learned I, I, I am and any human on the planet can become. Just the best they can be. First, let me say thank you for sharing that. Uh, I, I found that, and I, and I think you would agree, you're a public speaker. Uh, when, you, when you tell your story, it's so much more powerful. Yeah. So... Yeah. And I don't usually reveal all the personal details. In fact, I've never public. I have to circle of friends and confidants, but uh, you know, I haven't revealed all of that. Not that I'm afraid to, but um, usually we have a very focused target when clients invite us in, and this is a different audience here. So there, there's the story. Uh, no, I, I think that your story can help a lot of people. Uh, I think that quite a few of the listeners. Well, many of the listeners, because I, I talk about PTSD, I talk about mental health, and I think that a lot of times when, when we fall on our face, if you don't have that faith in yourself, if you feel like this is the defining moment of your life, that this, this huge failure, I think that it can bring on that, that sense of isolation and nobody could understand what I'm going through. The reality is, is that we all fail and we all make these mistakes. It's what we do with it that really defines us. Yeah. And the fact that you, I mean, I thought my stuff was like, you know, my career ended, but holy crap, like, having having death death threats and having that that sense of you know i can make it through it having that faith in yourself that's so huge and it just shows that the level that you're on so i it's incredible thank you for sharing your story you bet i have to do one more shout out with my faith as well my family has been incredible my wife, Debbie, has been amazing. Our three children have been amazing through this whole thing. We bonded like you can't believe. And we are close, as you can imagine, this day. I have three, three children and three grandchildren. Uh, luckily, they all live in Utah now, about 30 minutes away, but they haven't always. They were in different, one was in Florida, uh, another was in California, but they've all kind of chosen careers here. My family and that support, so anybody who can get a little bit of a support network, whether it's family or friends, as you know, Dave, makes all the difference in, in helping you deal with PTSD, which I, have, I believe I've had severely with some of the experiences, and you have, and so many people have had many more jugular things than that. But for me in my life, uh, they were pivotal events that caused me to look up and not look down. And every time I look up uh, then and move, then good things happen. One of the things that I've I've done in past interviews, it's not the most common thing that I've done, uh, but I found that, especially with with deep thinkers and, and people that you know have had the kind of experiences that you've had, there seem to be like three phases in life. You know, your early life where you kind of trying to figure out who you are and. And then you graduate from high school and you move on to college and go into a career field and you learn more lessons, different lessons about who you are and what you're capable of. And then you move into your, your later life where I think you are 
actually better equipped to use those early experiences to help people and really find your stride. And there's those important lessons in those three phases. And I'm wondering if you could share maybe what you believe to be the most important lesson in each one of those phases would be for you. I think the, um, <clears throat> in the early stage, the, the lesson that it's okay, you don't have to succeed every time. <clears throat> what you do need to do is get up when you get knocked down. So that was something, that plus hard work, right? I, I have a strong bias towards work solves a lot of ills, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. And so work hard and get up when you get knocked down. That's probably the biggest lesson. Um, in kind of the next phase, I realized if a person can do anything they want, you know, the edu you know edu some people choose to go to college, some people choose not to. So whatever you choose to do, it's fine, right? But make the most of what you, you can do. And I've learned that there's an infinite capacity. My belief is, my core true belief, there's an infinite capacity for good in every human. The greatness uh, resides in each one of us. And it's up to us and how we choose to engage with a higher power, how we choose to engage with others on whether we just have something that's it's fine, a fine existence versus a, a great existence. And it doesn't mean you have to have amazing success with money or, or work or anything like that. But maybe you can have amazing success with your neighbor. Maybe your neighbor is downtrodden and they're just having a hard time. And you can be the one person that changes the trajectory of their life. And with that mindset, there is literally infinite uh, possibilities of how you can turn something from good, from, from bad to good from someone being so depressed and so downtrodden that they can't even see anything at all to helping them lift their eyes on their potential and their innate ability to do good things and that there is hope there. And this might be, this of course, at least in my, my worldview is tied to your higher power. That's a big learning that I had. I did have another thing from because of this rugged individualist kind of approach, how, kind of how I was raised, um, I've had in my business experience a lot of rough edges that have been knocked off, right? And I remember one, in, I was a new manager at Anderson in Seattle. I thought, I was, and I had been promoted fast, you know, how you start feeling a little bit heady about how, oh, I'm doing this like you probably had your great career. You start thinking, I'm, you know, I'm pretty good at this stuff. And then we had something called a 360 degree review. You familiar with that? Yeah. Wow. So, you know, you fill out the little, the, the survey thing, people who report to you, you know, fill it out and then your bosses fill it out. So I got these surveys back and some, and somebody ripped me so hard. They called me Napoleon. I went, oh my gosh, because I didn't see myself. I said, Wow, how could I thought I was doing well? I thought I was understanding. I thought I was, you know, being a good guy. And it kicked me. This was a, at the time, this was another visceral moment. I was shocked. I called the HR person. I said, hey, I don't want to do any recrimination, but I'd love to know who that was so that I could actually talk to him and figure out what's going on. I said, no, no, we can't do that. It's all anonymous. And uh, so it caused me to step back and I went, okay, I thought I was doing the right things. Clearly, I wasn't for at least this person because I got some other nice feedback, but that's the one, of course, I doubled down on. I need to change. And so I, I think I went back and read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, <laughs> you know, a great book. And I said, what can I do differently? And I had a renaissance. Uh, in fact, because I, yeah, without going into all the detail, I was known as a fast track guy you know, always would deliver on the promise of whatever with clients. And I was good with clients, but I, but I apparently wasn't nurturing to my people. That changed me completely. When I made partner, which is about six years later, the, the managing partner who said announced my promotion 
everybody was, was congratulating me. He said, Dale is the Renaissance man. And then he said nice things. And I thought, oh, I'm so grateful because what matters most to me by far is not my, my tangible monetary success, but how I'm regarded by others. Not for my ego, but did I make a difference in a human to have them get something different and better? And so that was really, really a transformational pivot point for me. And I started becoming more self-aware. <clears throat> and I've truly tried. I make tons of mistakes all the time. I'm, I'm human. I, I don't do well all the time. I try so hard to be a good guy and an um, uplifting person with clients and with, with people. So that was a huge thing in my middle. And now I'm kind of in this stage, you know, of where I'm doing what I love now. I'm, I love my family. I love my wife. I love my friends. I love uh, people. I love my clients. I try to love my, my uh, colleagues. You notice the word that I use is love. Not in some weird way, but in a charitable way, in a, in a you know, do the best you can kind of a way. In cutting people slack and having empathy when they need empathy for their personal situations and their company situations, for having a high standard, but letting people know you just need to be directionally correct. You don't have to be perfect. You know, you'll get there. It's okay. Whether I'm teaching them one of the six skills or I'm, te- you know, I'm doing a keynote for a bunch of people, thousands of people. It's okay, folks. You know, pick one thing at a time. And get good at that. And then go do the next big thing. And you can get good at that. So I've kind of moved up that pyramid of self-actualization. And now I'm at the point where I'm just trying my best to self and group actualize in a way that's helpful. So everybody can get a different and better result. uh, Personally, professionally, in every way. Whether it's clients, colleagues, family, loved ones, others. And I have a core belief, again, that love is a a key tenet. I'll reveal one other secret. Let's say I'm talking to a group and they look a little curmudgeonly, (laughs) right? You can see their face. They're not quite getting it. I will pause in my mind mentally. I don't say this out loud. I'll say, you know, I love this guy. I love this person. Um, And and they're they're in a certain spot and and I really want to help them. And it takes away any animosity I might feel and it changes the narrative to at least the emotional narrative. It's an emotional intelligence thing to where I'm, I'm resonating with um, empathy. And that helps get it through the filter in their brain and helps them get the principle that I so want them to get, which I know will help them. That is, I think, the, the lesson right there is how when naturally you'd be frustrated with that client because they're pushing back and can't they understand I'm trying to help them? To be able to have that that self-talk to be able to shift really your your approach your mindset the the brain chemicals to where you're not acting from a defensive position but from a position of you know regardless i'm going to help this person and and approaching them with love that's so huge i i never put that together before my my good friend scott savage is his name he's the co-author he he and i are the the lead authors on the book Uh, he taught me this 11 years ago and i have so much love and respect for scott one of the most amazing people on the planet he said dale when you get pushback and challenge shower them with love and acceptance, quote unquote, Scott Savage. And I've taken that to heart and I had all, I've had all of my own experiences and I had, I, I think about that often and I think that gave me the jog to connect the synapses in my brain and I'm, that's a regular thing that I do. And um, I do it my way and the, the result's always the same. Empathy, empathy, is the road to being relevant. Relevant is means you're being you're focusing on what matters most to that person, that client, right? That human, that client, whoever it might be. That opens the way for being distinct 
showing them something different and better and being memorable make it easy to share and hard to forget. That formula, um, if I could encourage any of your listeners to do anything, is to put that in your ear like an earworm. You ever heard the Baby Shark song? I'm going to do it to your audience. I'm sorry. It's baby shark, do, 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 baby shark. That's an earworm. It doesn't go away. If I could have people just remember RDM, relevant, distinct, memorable, with helping clients succeed, put that in as an earworm, repeat it like a song or a mantra. Wow. It's helped me personally and helped so many people that I've tried to help um, over the years to just stand out as different and better because you're trying to help the other person succeed. For those listening that would want to connect with you, buy your book, um, have you come speak, what is the best way to connect with you? And is there a preferred method of purchasing your book, your preferred method of somebody purchasing your sure. book? Sure. <clears throat> well, Amazon, I mean, it's on all the different online services. Amazon's the biggest one. Just Google strikingly different selling. Or, or, and, or, and put my name in Dale Merrill. You don't even need my name. It'll pop uh, on Amazon. To get connect with me, LinkedIn's the easiest way. Uh, you can look me up. If you just Googled my name, Dale Merrill Franklin Covey, I'll pop and you'll see me on LinkedIn. Um, my email address is, and this is also how you could find me on LinkedIn, is Dale, D-A-L-E dot Merrill, M-E-R-R-I-L-L, at franklincovey.com. And so you can do that on LinkedIn. Uh, you can send me a note, connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm happy to, you know, come speak at your company or chat with you if, I, if you have other ideas. This was a very personal podcast, right? A vulnerable podcast. And I hope it's helpful for people to just maybe see their situation a little bit differently. I hope this is a very helpful thing. And if I can be a helper along the way, I'd be delighted to do that. I, I really appreciate you taking the time and and sharing so much i have no doubt that you're going to touch some lives and uh, maybe there's people listening right now that would have never considered uh looking into franklin covey or you know a sales book but i really truly believe that your book, though it is about sales, I think it's more, um, it, it has another layer to it that can help improve people's lives personally and uh, in their family life. So, Well, thank you, Dave. It's been a, a treat to be on here with you. It's been great getting to know you a little bit. Likewise. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.